0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, Articles, Videos and Podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Is empathy a prerequisite for a successful society? Or is empathy an irrational emotion which appeals to our narrow prejudices? This week we're asking whether empathy is our best base for morality, and we explore the implications of empathy in the modern world. On today's episode we're joined remotely by Oxford Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Centre of Subjectivity Research, Dan Zahavi, and we explore the implications of empathy in the modern world.
2: A few years back, uh, the former president, U.S. President Obama, was arguing that the empathy deficit in the U.S. was a more pressing political problem than the federal deficit.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, IAI.tv. Back now to Dan Zahavi.
2: So the topic of my talk this today is, is empathy. On many accounts, empathy is a capacity that allows us to experience the world of others. It's a force against selfishness and indifference. It's something that we need to nurture and expand. And so there is this general assumption that a high degree of empathy is a requirement for being good and doing good. A few years back, uh, the former president, U.S. President Obama, was arguing that the empathy deficit in the U.S. was a more pressing political problem than the federal deficit. And Jeremy Rifkin has argued that what we really need in order to solve the global challenges is to enter what he calls the age of empathy. Now, given this kind of hype about empathy, it's perhaps not so surprising that there has been a skeptical pushback during the last few years. And perhaps most vocal advocate of this pushback is the Yale psychologist, Paul Bloom. Now in a book uh, called Against Empathy that was published a few years ago, Bloom was basically arguing that empathy is an irrational emotion that appeals to our narrow prejudices. On his account, our decisions would be clearer, fairer, and more moral if we didn't rely on empathy. And so limiting our impulse towards empathy might actually be the most compassionate choice we could possibly make. Now, if we look a little bit closer into Bloom's criticism, we will see that he basically directs two two types of criticism against empathy. On the one hand, Bloom is arguing that empathy is biased What does that mean? Well, the main argument is that we tend to empathize with those whose needs are salient, those who are close by and similar to ourselves. And One might perhaps liken empathy to a kind of spotlight, really marks out a very narrow focus. And if that's the case, well, then there is a problem if we are... Uh, interested in promoting impartiality and fairness on a global scale because there's a, a tension between empathy's kind of narrow focus and this more global expansive uh, uh, interest. And so Bloom is basically arguing that what would be a much better route toward kind of global impartiality and justice would be uh, us uh, developing a keen sense of justice or moral obligation. We should really push empathy aside and and focus on on those moral virtues. In addition, uh, Bloom is also arguing that even when it comes to kind of close interpersonal relationships, uh, empathy might be overrated because what does it mean to empathize with somebody? Well, on Bloom's account, To empathize with another person in pain or distress is to feel what the other person is feeling. So empathy is really about effective sharing. And the problem here is that, that that is not necessarily to your advantage. I mean, if you are in psychological distress or if you are in physical pain, and if you visit a psychologist or a general practitioner, it's not necessarily to your advantage if the psychologist, the medical, uh, the general practitioner starts with, empathizing with you, and as a result, comes to suffer uh, because what you really need is somebody who can help you, aid you, and if the empathizer gets distressed or becomes, becomes uh, gets to suffer, I mean, he or she might very quickly become more concerned with his own distress a suffering rather than with yours. And again, if, if you want help, that is not necessarily a, a good thing. So what we come up with here is that, uh, is that Bloom basically, as I already mentioned, defines empathy primarily as a form of affective sharing. And I think given that definition, I mean, I think it's fairly straightforward that that the link between empathy and morality is not straightforward. But what I want to consider in the following and what I want to discuss with you is really an alternative uh, take on empathy. And I want to present that alternative uh, uh, account. And then towards the end of my presentation, I want us to reconsider the link between empathy and morality. Is that link different if one kind of opts for this alternative account? So I think the right way, uh, the right place to start is in the writings of uh, Theodor Lips. Theodor Lips was a a German uh, psychologist and philosopher, and he was actually the one who first started talking about empathy in an interpersonal context. I mean, the German... A term, German original term here, is Einfühlung. It was Lips's notion of Einfühlung that the American psychologist uh, Titchener translated as empathy in his lectures on uh, the experimental psychology of thought processes in 1909. And so, this is also a reminder that the discussion of empathy is actually very recent. It's not an. It's not an old term. It's a fairly new term, and again. if we want to look at how it was originally used, well, we have to kind of go back to uh, the work of, uh, of Theodor Lips. And what Lips was saying in his uh, in, in kind of writings that came out in the beginning of the uh, 20th century was basically that that empathy constitutes a modality of knowledge uh, sui generis. Basically, was, what Lips was saying was that there are three different uh, domains of, uh, of reality and three different sources of knowledge concerning these domains. There is the domain of external objects and the knowledge of these objects is provided by perception. There is the domain of one's own mind and the source of knowledge for that is introspection. And finally, there is the domain of others' minds and the source for that knowledge, according to Lips is empathy. So what is very important here is that from the outset uh, Lips was using uh, the term empathy as an epistemic notion it didn't have any pro social or moral connotations Now Lips didn't just highlight uh, you know the utility of uh, of empathy he also tried to explain the kind of mechanisms that uh, permits it enables it and to kind of important features here were uh, imitation and projection. And so basically uh, the end result of this specific account uh, was that I can really only come to understand uh, those mental states of others uh, that I have already had myself and that I can only recognize that in the other, which I put there myself. So this is kind of the slightly perhaps depressing a uh, conclusion of, uh, of Lips' uh, discussion of empathy. Now, what then happens in the following decade is that a number of theological philosophers, including Husserl and Mark Scheler and Ed Stein, they all start engaging with the problem of empathy. And they all are uh, inspired by lipses work, but they're also provoked by it. They basically accept, just like he did, that empathy is the label for a very basic form of other understanding, a very basic form of social cognition, but they rejected uh, his uh, appeal to invitation and projection. And what one can, I mean, the the relevant uh, texts to consider here are basically, uh, uh, and that, that's also the text that I will primarily be drawing on, and what follows is... is uh, uh, um, a volume that was only published posthumously by Husserl called, uh, in in translation, uh, regarding phenomenology of intersubjectivity. Uh, Then there is uh, Scheler's work uh, on the nature of sympathy uh, and uh, Stein's work on the problem of of empathy. So these are all works coming out or relating to texts written in the second decade of the 20th century. But let's take a look at what what the phenomenologists are saying about uh, empathy. So One of the ideas that one can find in Husserl is the following. For Husserl, the mindedness of the author, his thinking, feeling, desiring, is intuitively present in the gestures, the intonations, and in the facial expressions. So the basic idea here is that the very expressivity of the author is imbued with some kind of psychological meaning from the start. And according to Husserl, the capacity that allows us to understand and grasp this psychological meaning is empathy. Stein argues that uh, empathy is the name for a kind of irreducible form of intentionality directed at other experiencing subjects. And she claims that it that empathy is the basic cognitive source for our comprehension of foreign subjects and their experiences and that this is what more complex kinds of social cognition rely on and presuppose. So importantly, neither Stein nor Husserl for that matter is arguing that empathy is is the only route uh, to an uh, understanding of others, but for both of them, it's the most basic, most primitive, the most fundamental way of understanding others. And finally, we have Scheler, who uh, often uses the term fremdwahrnehmung, uh, that is other perception, and even talks about his own theory as a perceptual theory of other mind. So again, there's this idea that empathy allows for a certain perceptual grasp of the mental states of others. And kind of summarizing, of course, I mean, had I more time, I could start discussing some of the differences between uh, Stein, Husserl, and Scheler. But, but in this talk, I'm primarily going to view them as, as articulating a kind of common approach. I won't really be focusing on any differences between their respective accounts. For all three of them, empathy can really be understood as a form of uh, exp- understanding of expressive meaning. the kind of Ausdrucksverstehen, to use this German term. So empathy is really the label for uh, an experiential encounter with the other's embodied and uh, embedded uh, experiences. Now, what does this then really amount to? And here's a, a way of perhaps cashing out this, perhaps so far still fairly uh uh, abstract account. So co- compare the two following situations. Uh, in the first case, you enter your friend's home. Uh, he, he happens to be away, so you are alone in his apartment. Uh, you enter his office, and then you discover that uh, all the letters from his ex-wife has been torn up, and you know the chair is kind of uh, pushed to the side, and you infer from, from this evidence that that he's in all likelihood anguished and distressed uh, because of his recent uh, divorce. So this is of course a form of interpersonal understanding, it's a form of social cognition, but but you are really trying to understand somebody who is not currently present and you are using different inferences in order to do that. Now compare that to a situation where you are now um, face to face with your friend uh, you are talking with him and suddenly he breaks down and, you know, from his facial expressions, from the tonality of his his voice, uh, you kind of perceive his anguish and distress. So that is obviously also a type of social cognition that is also a form of interpersonal understanding, but it's arguably a very different type uh, than the previous one. And for the phenomenologists, empathy is really about this latter kind of experiential understanding. So what they would all say is basically that what empathy allows for is the grasp of of the here and now presence of an experience that is not your own. So empathy is really other direct, it's targeting the experiences of others. Uh, And they would argue that in the empathic face-to-face encounter, you can obtain an acquaintance with the author's experiential life that has a directness and immediacy to it that is just very different from whatever beliefs you might have about the author in, in his or her absence. So that's the, uh, the positive account, if you will. And let me just try again to highlight the difference between this account and two very currently widespread uh, ways of understanding uh, empathy. So I, I've already talked about uh, Bloop's account, which is the, the bottom one. According to this widespread view, empathy is the form of effective sharing. To empathize with someone is to come to feel what the other is feeling. But there's also another widespread view that basically takes empathy as a form of imaginative perspective, take, perspective taking. So to empathize with someone is to imagine what it would be like to be in the author's uh, shoes. And let's see what the terminologists would say vis-a-vis uh, both of these uh, proposals. So if we start with imaginative perspective taking, well, they would basically argue that that is a very handy and useful uh, capacity, but that we shouldn't conflate or confuse it with empathy because empathy and imaginative perspective taking can really occur independently of each other. So they can't be identical. What could be the argument? Well, consider my ability to imagine what say it would have been like for Caesar to cross the Rubicon. I mean, I can do that using my imagination, but whatever insights that provides me into Caesar's psychological life, it's very different from what I would have been able to, Uh, gain had I been face-to-face with CESAR. And likewise, I mean, I might, in a face-to-face situation, recognize, say, the sorrow in your face without that necessarily depending on me at the same time running some kind of explicit uh, imaginative uh, simulations. Then there is the issue about effective sharing. And I mean, one kind of slight point to make here is that many of the people who talk about empathy as amounting to a form of effective sharing. And that is a a fairly popular view. It's it's definitely not just uh, Bloom who is uh, talking about empathy in this manner. Many of the people who are doing that uh, actually do not offer any uh, uh, explanation of what exactly sharing is. And I mean, sharing is actually quite an enigmatic concept and there are many different forms of sharing. So, I mean, sharing a a toothbrush or sharing a cap to the airport is very different from sharing a a bottle of wine, for instance, uh, because if we share a bottle of wine, I mean, we don't really drink the very same wine whereas if we share a toothbrush it's the identical same toothbrush that both of us are using. Okay so let's look at how the uh, the account of empathy differs from these other currently used definitions and first of all phenomenologists would insist that there is a difference between empathy on the one hand and imaginative perspective taking on the other. Basically the main argument is that both of these can occur independently of one another. Take, for instance, uh, the following uh, case. I might be able to imagine, uh, I mean, through some kind of imaginative perspective taking, I might come to possess some kind of understanding of what, of what CSA might have felt the moment he crossed the Rubicon. Now, whatever uh, access to Caesar's mind this imaginative exercise gives me, it's surely very different from whatever access I might have gained had I actually been standing face-to-face with Caesar when that happened. And likewise, I might be able in a face-to-face situation to say, recognize the sorrow in in your face without that necessarily presupposing that I'm at the same time running some kind of imaginative uh, simulation. So for the phenomenologists, empathy, and imaginative perspective taking are really two very different things. Likewise, when it comes to uh, the issue of effective sharing, and one, things to, one thing to mention here is that many of the people who talk about effective sharing, actually do not really spell out what notion of sharing they are talking about. And I mean, sharing is a pretty uh, enigmatic concept. One can share things in very different ways. So sharing, uh, an emotion, sharing a bottle of wine and sharing a toothbrush, all very different ways of of sharing. Uh, And it's not always really clear what precisely uh, the, uh, the people who take empathy to be a form of effective sharing has in mind. But the most common definition is to say, if they are at all spelling out what the sharing amounts to, what they are really saying is that Sharing just means that one that one feels what the other person is feeling. So there is some kind of similarity between one's own emotion and the emotion of the person that one is empathizing with. And I have to say, I mean, I don't think that's a very good definition of sharing because in principle, I might have the same kind of, say, grief as somebody in Buenos Aires by pure coincidence, but I don't think it would really be appropriate to say that we were therefore sharing the same uh, uh, emotion. But be that as it may, I don't think that effective sharing is necessary for empathy. And Let me just quickly run through three examples, three counter examples. I mean, you might stay be face to face with a colleague who has just been promoted. Uh, you can see the joy in his face. You can You have this direct grasp of his joy but you're actually uh, very envious uh, and uh, the fact that you yourself is is kind of p- pervaded or saturated with envy which of course is a very different emotion than his joy doesn't impede your ability to recognize that joy in an empathetic manner. Likewise take the case where uh, A person is running towards you with a raised uh, baseball bat. You can recognize the fury in the face of your assailant, even though you yourself might at that very moment be fearful rather than furious. And finally, imagine a case where uh, your friend is introducing you to his new uh, girlfriend and you can kind of empathically grasp the love in his eyes when he's looking at her again Seems strange to claim that the only uh, uh, that, that you would only be able to do that if you yourself were loving her as well. So to kind of wrap up this uh, main part, what exactly is the phenomenology saying? Well, they're very insistent that empathy is to, not to be conflated with imaginative perspective taking; it should not be conflated with emotional sharing, nor is it some kind of emotional contagion. In fact, empathy is not at all about me having the same mental state as the other, but it's about me being experientially acquainted with an experience that remains foreign, which is exactly not my experience. So empathy is a very particular experiential engagement with the other. Empathy is not about creating similarities, not about creating fusion or union, it's about preserving and respecting the difference between self and other. And that's also why Husserl in one of his uh, his books is basically arguing that in empathy, consciousness really transcends itself and is confronted with otherness of a completely new kind. Now, so the main question now, and this is kind of the concluding part of my talk, where does this leave us vis-a-vis the relationship between empathy and morality? If one kind of, accepts the phenomenological proposal about what empathy really is. Now, none of the phenomenologists would accept the definition of empathy used by Bloom because they do not take empathy to be a question of effective sharing. But nor would any of them argue that empathy is intrinsically pro-social, let alone sufficient for morality. I mean, none of them holds that view. And in fact, Sheila even goes so far as to argue that cruelty presupposes empathy and that the latter is consequently no hindrance for the former and so of course I mean given that uh, that Sheila is saying something like that of course he would not have claimed at all that empathy was somehow necessarily uh, moral but from the fact that empathy is not sufficient for morality one can of course not conclude that it has no significant role to play and I think and this would be you know one important point to make, were we to lack empathy, I mean, were we not to have that capacity, we would also lack a basic experiential grasp of authors as co-subjects, and therefore also have a far higher, a far, sorry, far harder time actually identifying targets for moral action. So, I mean, if we suddenly were to eliminate empathy from the picture, the situation would look very different and let me try to quickly uh, exemplify that by taking a look at the clinical uh, clinical context, which is also uh, the example that Bloom himself picks up. So there's something called the disability paradox, which is uh, the following paradox. External observers, be they healthcare professionals or even family members, tend to judge individuals with serious and persistent disabilities to live an undesirable or even miserable life, despite the fact that when one asks the the patients themselves, they will often report that they actually have a good or even excellent quality of life. And I mean, one context where this disability paradox is kind of starkly manifested is is within the the context of people suffering from locked-in, syndrome and of course one might ask well why, why is there this mismatch between what external observers are inferring and what people themselves are experiencing and i think this could potentially point to one of the difficulties or one of the problems with uh, imaginative perspective taking because imaginative perspective taking you know, taking on the author's perspective is often nothing more <clears throat> than merely an imposition of one's own view upon the other is <clears throat> often nothing but an attempt to constitute the other true projection and fantasy. And I have a I think interesting quote here from Elizabeth Spellman, who's actually not talking about empathy, but I think what she highlights in this quote is very relevant from our for our context. While I'm perceiving someone, I must be prepared to receive new information all the time to adapt my actions accordingly, and to have my feelings develop in response to what the person is doing, whether I like what she's doing or not. When simply imagining her, I can escape from the demands her reality puts on me and instead construct her in my own mind in such a way that I can possess her, make her into someone or something that never talks back. I think this highlights one problem with imaginative perspective-taking and also highlights why empathy might be relevant in a clinical context. Because in the face-to-face encounter, what empathy allows for is precisely this recognition of and preservation of the difference between self and other. If one approaches others with empathy, One approaches the other with the attitude that there's much that I do not yet understand. And this humility might make me more open to the other, might enable me also to be prepared to learn something new. So I think that even though empathy does not in itself amount to or result in pro-social action, it might still serve a very important role. But there's something that has to be added to this uh, uh, point. And that is, of course, that experiencing the author as an author by that very same token also allows for a different kind of immorality and, and abuse. And, and this kind of comes back to the point that, that Sheila was making about empathy being a precondition for cruelty. If one were in fact completely insensitive to other people's suffering, if one as a result of pathology, say if one was suffering from a very severe form of, uh, of autism, if one were incapable of discriminating human beings from pieces of furniture or so logs of wood and treated them accordingly, one could hardly be accused of being cruel or brutal vis-a-vis them. So in order to be cruel and brutal, I mean, we need to have this recognition of the mindedness of others, which is exactly what empathy allows for. So the conclusion is then that the moral significance of empathy remains somewhat uh, ambiguous. And so to kind of wrap up and conclude, the claim that empathy is not necessarily pro-social is actually not a new claim. It's a claim that can be found all the way back and it was actually very much a part of what the original classical account of empathy uh, entailed. But even though empathy is not per se moral, even though it's not sufficient for morality, I think it would be premature to argue that it's irrelevant for morality because without empathy, our moral life would look very different And to go uh, the way as suggested by by Bloom that, you know, our lives would be better if we could completely eradicate the presence of empathy would be, I think, a a major mistake. I mean, to eradicate empathy from our lives, to eradicate our capacity to directly grasp the presence of others would be like, you know... blinding ourselves.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.